Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. There are some animated characters who are legitimately hot. You've got Robin Hood from Disney's Robin Hood. Yes, he's a fox, but he's also a bit of a fox. Uh, Aladdin, uh, Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid, Human Shrek from Shrek 2. Guys, Ashitaka joins the list. Ashitaka is hot. (laughs) What's wrong with me? (laughs) In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 47, Princess Mononoke. I First of all, I hope that you and your loved ones and everyone that you like, and maybe even dislike, are safe and well. Um, here in the UK they've just started something called um, Social Bubbles, I think they're called, where you can visit with another household if you live alone, uh, which obviously I do, and my wonderful sister suggested that I form a bubble with her and the boys. Um, I haven't done it yet, uh, but honestly the idea of being able to cuddle my nephews just sounds like the best thing ever right now. Um, so, but anyway, uh, wherever you are in the world, stay safe, stay well, and thank you for being here for Princess Mononoke. Um, if you're new to Verbal Diorama, uh, welcome to my podcast. Excuse my cat going off on one in the background. <laughs> Last episode was the first episode that I recorded um, with some new equipment that I bought with uh, a donation from uh, my wonderful patrons. Um, and it's really great equipment, by the way. It's like I personally thought that the uh, the sound quality, and the audio quality is so much better uh, last episode, which is great uh, just for the podcast in general. But also um, with this new equipment, even though I have the door closed, Jess is still incredibly loud. I must add that she is not in any distress. Um, she's not hungry. She doesn't need the toilet or anything like that. Um, she just gets a little bit of separation anxiety from me um and because i've got the door closed and because she's awake she basically just wants to know where i am she knows that i'm in here but she wants to come in here but if she comes in here she will literally make that noise next to me um because she just wants me to play with her so um so yeah just so that you know if you do hear her in the background she i'm not being a bad cat owner she is not distressed in any way this is just the way she is so um so yeah with this new equipment you will hear more of Jess and she is loud I have to live with her <laughs> she is very loud so anyway uh as I said if you're new welcome to me and my podcast and my cat um thank you for listening uh as always uh I am thrilled that you are here to listen to me talk uh about random movies and stuff um and also uh thank you very much to everyone who downloaded rogue one rogue one was something i was very nervous to put out there 
Um, I had to build up quite a lot of courage to actually do a Star Wars episode in the first place. Um, I was apprehensive about it, but I got so many positive comments, fans of Star Wars getting in touch saying, we really liked your episode, um, which is great. That's kind of, you know, ultimately what I wanted was for anyone who enjoys Star Wars to just really enjoy the episode. And, um, And the positive comments have spurred me on to maybe, maybe do more Star Wars. Uh, It won't be till next year um, because, to be honest, I don't have room in the schedule for any more Star Wars this year. But but I am considering doing some more Star Wars um, for next year. Um, And also, a quick correction. Thank you to Andy for pointing this out because apparently I said that Felicity Jones had won an Oscar, but obviously she did not. And uh, I meant to say that she was nominated, uh, but obviously I just made a little bit of a boo-boo. So, um, so yeah, I always, I don't mind being called out on mistakes. Uh, mistakes happen when you're live and recording. Sometimes you just don't get it right. So, uh, so yeah, uh, apologies for that little mistake. Uh, and apologies to Felicity Jones for <laughs> insinuating that she won an Oscar when she didn't. It'll come as no surprise to you, if you are a regular listener to Verbal Diorama, how much I love Studio Ghibli and the work of Hayao Miyazaki. Just recently, I did episodes um, on Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away and My Neighbour Totoro back in February for the podcast anniversary. And though they were really well received, the main question that I got was, when are you doing Princess Mononoke? Are you doing Princess Mononoke? Please tell me you're doing Princess Mononoke. Um, So, (laughs) and literally, probably just three people were asking the question, but that was three people who really, really wanted this episode. So... I am actually kind of glad that I didn't do Princess Mononoke for the anniversary. And that's basically because those episodes were fairly short. Because I did three that were released in one day, I made them quite short. They were about 30, 35 minutes long. But with a full length episode like I'll do today, um, I can really get into Princess Mononoke like it deserves. Because this is a movie that's just jam packed, full of theme and character and and brilliance. There is nothing wasted in this movie. There is no fat to trim, despite what jackass Harvey Weinstein might think. But um, yeah, we'll we'll get to that a bit later. Um, So I promised that I would. It's one of the greatest animated movies ever made. It's a masterclass in animation um, and also one of the longest animated movies ever. And before I begin, as I mentioned in the other Studio Ghibli episodes, um, I'm not a purist when it comes to watching anime in subs. And as I said back then, I don't go a bundle on the whole subs v dubs argument. Um, And I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. I'm not going to turn around and dictate to someone that you should be watching in subs. Neither am I going to say you should watch it in dubs. I watch either or. I've watched both. Um, And I, I think you can get something out of a dub and you can get something out of a sub. Obviously, there's always things that are lost in translation. Um, and I'll talk about the the dubbing of Princess Mononoke specifically a bit later. But I would always say, if you are going to watch anime, especially something Studio Ghibli, because it tends to be a bit more accessible than a lot of other anime. And because I watch subs and dubs interchangeably, um, I would just say, however you watch it, just watch it. It doesn't matter if you're a subber or a dubber. It genuinely doesn't. If you have not watched Princess Mononoke, you probably shouldn't be here because we're going to go into the themes of Princess Mononoke. There's probably not going to be very many spoilers, maybe. But yeah, I would always say, however you want to watch it, just watch it. And that is the verbal diorama line on subs v dubs. Enough of that waffle. We're going to we're gonna do it. We're going to go into what is arguably Miyazaki's more complex and grown up and epic really and it's it's the sort of story where there are no simple answers to difficult questions princess mononoke in a time when gods walk the earth an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest when the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out this place will be the richest land in the world Now, the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. You fight like a demon, boy. Like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? 
to see with eyes unclouded by hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! if you choose. Princess Mononoke. While protecting his village from a rampaging boar god, confident young warrior Prince Ashitaka is stricken by a deadly curse. Banished from his village, he sets out on a journey to the forests of the west to find answers to, to the demonic forces within the boar god. Once there, he's embroiled in a fierce campaign that humans are waging on the natural world. The ambitious Lady Eboshi and her loyal clan use their guns against the gods of the forest and mine for iron ore. And a brave young woman, San, who was raised by a wolf god, fights to protect the forests from Lady Eboshi's ambitions. Ashitaka sees the good in both sides and tries to stem the war. This is met by animosity as they each see him as supporting the enemy. So, cast um, of this movie. As I mentioned, subs feed dubs. So, there is a, an original Japanese version that is available subtitled. There is also a Disney dub version. And I will list both the original and the Disney dub cast, just to make it easy. So, um, you have Yoji Matsuda and Billy Crudup as Ashitaka. Yuriko Ishida and Claire Danes as San. Yuko Tanaka and Minnie Driver as Lady Eboshi, Akihiro Miwa and Gillian Anderson as Moro, Kaoru Kobayashi and Billy Bob Thornton as Jikobo or Jigo in the English dub, and Sumi Shimamoto and Jada Pinkett Smith as Toki. It was obviously, I don't think I need to tell you, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Um, It was after Princess Mononoke that he announced his retirement from filmmaking. Um, And uh, Miyazaki can do a great many things. He is a wonderful filmmaker. He's literally one of the greatest animators in the world. He can do a great many things, but one thing he can't do is retire. um, Because he was back in 2001 for Spirited Away. Uh, Miyazaki is often called the Japanese Disney and it's understandable why someone would call him that but it's also kind of wrong uh, in a sense that there is really no comparison between Miyazaki and Disney. Disney makes great movies, they are fun, they are bright, they're colourful, they've got beautiful songs but they are kind of light and fluffy compared to Miyazaki's movies. And Miyazaki, he likes to talk about recurring themes. He likes to talk about important themes. And his movies are uh, suitable for children on the most part. Uh, I'd argue Princess Mononoke is probably more suited to older children than younger children, um, just because some of the violence is a little bit more aggressive um, than the other movies. But... um, These are still movies that are suitable for all ages, um, but they're not Disney princesses and princes and, you know, singing about wanting things in life. There's none of that in Miyazaki's movies. And Miyazaki and, by extension, Studio Ghibli as a whole, they don't pull their punches on serious local and worldwide issues. Um, I'll go into a little bit about Miyazaki himself. Um, I'll be honest, this is just copied and pasted from the episodes that I did before. He was born in 1941. His interest in animation was sparked by the 1958 movie Panda and the Magic Serpent. And he graduated in 1963 with degrees in political science and economics before starting work at Toei Animation as an animator. And he also started writing manga. He also worked for APRO, where he started working on Lupin the Third Part One and Nippon Animation before moving to Telecom Animation Film in 1979. His directorial debut was The Castle of Cagliostro, a Lupin the Third film. He then worked on the film adaptation of manga series Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, where he enlisted musician Joe Hisaishi to compose the score. 
1985, Miyazaki, along with Isao Takahata, Yasuyoshi Takuma and Toshio Suzuki, uh, co-founded Studio Ghibli, named after the Libyan Arabic name for hot desert wind. The first Studio Ghibli feature film was released in 1986, and that was Laputa Castle in the Sky. Um, I've talked before about animation being this all-encompassing art form, um, and a lot of places online, like when you go to Netflix... Um, and it lists genres. It will list animation as a genre. Animation is not a genre. Um, also, there's this um, mistaken concept that animation is just for children. Um, and I think if Miyazaki's movies prove anything, it's that animation is not just for children. Uh, and especially movies like Princess Mononoke are not just for children. Uh, these are suitable for children, but they are not children's movies. Um while Ghibli's work is often very different in genre, all of Miyazaki's movies tend to follow similar themes. So themes of environmentalism, industrialization, militarization. Um, in fact, the only thing that Princess Mononoke itself lacks is flight. Um, and flight is something that tends to be found in most of Miyazaki's movies uh, or some kind of flying machine. Um, and obviously Princess Mononoke is very much on its feet, on the ground. Um, so it was as early as the late 1970s when Hayao Miyazaki started drawing sketches of a princess living in the woods with a beast. He held on to that thought until August 1994 when he started writing the film's plot and initial storyboards which he completed in April 1995. In May 1995, Miyazaki and a team of 15 animation directors and background artists set off for Yakushima, a beautiful lush green dense forest filled with rare animals and plants. They were there for six days, they walked along hiking courses, they visited the evergreen forests and they took a 10 hour round trip to Jomonsugi, uh, which is a large cryptomeria tree located on Yakushima. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and the trees there are estimated to be up to 7,200 years old. Yakushima was also the inspiration for Miyazaki's 1984 movie Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which I watched recently, by the way, um, and is very similar to Princess Mononoke in theme, um, but arguably Nausicaa as a character is a much more compassionate and likeable princess uh, than San. The animation process for Princess Mononoke started in July 1995 and Miyazaki, being the perfectionist and master of the art that he is, personally oversaw each of the 144,000 animation cells in the film. It was reported that he also personally retouched 88,000 of those cells by hand, but Miyazaki himself states that he doesn't know how many he redid because, and I quote, many are perfect as they are. Princess Mononoke consists of mostly hand-drawn animation uh, with minor CGI. Uh, the boar god demon Nago at the start and his many snake tentacles. Contrary to popular belief, uh, if you've seen Princess Mononoke, which I'm sure you have if you're listening, um, that was not computer generated. Uh, that was all animated by hand. That took 5,300 drawings just on its own and a year and seven months just to animate all of the little individual wiggly snakes on the boar god. Uh, Princess Mononoke was the first Miyazaki-directed movie to include CGI elements. It was not the first Studio Ghibli movie to include those elements, but it was Mia first Miyazaki's movie. Uh, and the CGI uh, is limited, uh, but very effective in this movie. And also, if you don't know where it is, you wouldn't notice it. And I think that's the mark of good CGI uh, in, in any movie, really. If you don't notice that it's there, then it's good. Um, so when Ashitaka is infected um, by the curse, there are a couple of scenes of his arm with uh, snakes around it, and, and they were computer-generated. Um, and also, when San's mother, Moro, is injured by Lady Eboshi, San sucks the blood out of the wound and spits it out and the blood that San spits out of her mouth was also computer generated again you would not know it um so the curse that Ashitaka undergoes in the movie um is is based on Japanese mythology and it's a curse called the Tatarigami um and Japanese mythology considers them to be bringers of war 
famine, plague, and death. Um, and the curses infest all creatures, uh, including humans. When Lady Eboshi fires guns at any demon that has this curse, it weakens the flesh of the host, but it doesn't kill the demon within. Um, only the blood of the forest spirit can cure the curse of the Tatarigami. Just FYI. Um, so, back to the making of the movie. So, Neil Gaiman, uh, obviously national treasure and writer of the wonderful Coraline. Um, look out for that little treasure uh, at some point this year because it's been on my list for a long time. So, expect Coraline. And that's all I'm going to say. Um, and also the previous episode, Stardust, um, which a lot of people really love. Uh, he came on board to write the English dub after heated discussions between Steve Alpert of Studio Ghibli and Disney, um, who were the distributors of the English dub. So Ghibli didn't want Disney to attempt to correct parts of the script that they saw as problematic or confusing to Western audiences. Disney wanted to change the character names to make them more appealing, um, despite Gigobo's name ultimately changing in the end. I'm actually not sure why that happened, but anyway. Uh, so guidelines were therefore contractually agreed by Ghibli that Disney could make an English dubbed version, uh, and Neil Gaiman will come on board for that, um, but they had restrictions on what they could and couldn't do. So the rules that Miyazaki himself made up included... Don't bother trying to translate the title. It can't be done. No contemporary language or modern slang. Choose good voices. The voices are important. Ashitaka is a prince. He's well-spoken and formal, old-fashioned for his time. The Amishi are a people that never made it into modern Japan, wiped out and gone. Lady Eboshi's people are very low class, outcasts, former prostitutes, hustlers, crooks and reformed pimps and lepers, but she's not. She's from a different class. Jigobo says he works for the emperor. The emperor is not how we think of him now. He would have been living in poverty and making a living selling his signature. Who does Jigo really work for? We don't know. He has a document signed by the emperor. Doesn't mean anything. And the things that look like rifles are not rifles. Rifles are a different thing. These are more like portable cannons. Do not translate them as rifles. They are not rifles. Do not use the word rifle. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, they were incredibly particular about what Disney could and couldn't do. Uh, Quentin Tarantino was actually asked first to pen the English dub. He was the one who instead recommended Neil Gaiman. Uh, and Neil Gaiman's adaptation of the script is widely considered to be one of the best translations from Japanese to English, despite a few choice differences. Uh, Gaiman himself didn't want the movie to be in inverted commas, Disney-fied, and set about writing his script, which, according to Steve Alpert, was terrific. He reworked things that worked in Japanese, but not in English, such as soup tasting like hot water in Japanese became soup tasting like horse piss in English. Um, and Kaya, who calls herself Ashitaka's little sister, uh, she refers to him as brother in the movie, is actually more his betrothed, um, in Amishi tradition, a girl would give her future husband a dagger on the day of their wedding. She gives Ashitaka the dagger as he's leaving, even though as he's banished, she's not allowed to see him, but she does it anyway. Um, and then obviously um, Ashitaka then passes that dagger on to his beloved San. Um, so yeah, poor Kaya really does get the short end of the stick there. But um, they're never going to see each other again because he's banished and he is not going back to his tribe. So... Uh, Neil Gaiman actually struggled, mostly working with what Miramax wanted, um, but he also struggled with what Miyazaki also wanted, um, and he was very torn between the two. While the first version of his script was pleasing to Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli executives, Miramax ended up taking what Gaiman had done uh, and independently revised it without his knowledge, um, again with Studio Ghibli having final say on the finished product. Um, so essentially, Neil Gaiman was pushed out of the project. Uh, he then, to add insult to injury, had his name erased from the credits. Uh, and this again was due to Miramax, um, who, when asked by Studio Ghibli to remove the names of Harvey and Bob Weinstein and producer Scott Martin from the poster and the credits of the movie, they instead left their names on and removed Neil Gaiman's. Uh, Neil Gaiman confirmed this on Twitter in 2019, and it is not the first time 
you'll hear of shady dealings by Miramax or Harvey Weinstein in this episode, as if I need to explain further. Uh, So the movie itself is set during the Muromachi era of 1336 to 1573, just after the Kenmu restoration uh, and the continued resistance of the supporters of the emperor at that time. Uh, He was Emperor Go Daigo. This was a time of transition from a feudal era um, to a more modern way of living. So this is Miyazaki's only movie set during feudal Japan. Obviously, there has been another movie that I've covered set in Field of Japan, that is Kubo and the Two Strings, um, and I would highly recommend Kubo and the Two Strings. But yeah, this was Miyazaki's only feudal Japanese movie. Uh, As I mentioned, it's based on actual Japanese folklore. So Shishigami, uh, also called... Okay, this is a long word, guys. Yatsuka Mizuno Mitsumo. Ooh, I think I might have got that right. Yatsuka Mizuno Mitsumo. I like that word, Um, is worshipped in Japanese mythology. Uh, This is the deer god, by the way, Uh, as a deer with a tree on its head. So that is very similar to the design of the Shishigami in Princess Mononoke. And the beautiful, cute, lovely little Kodama, they are the little cute white beings that are in the forest. They are just the most adorable little things. Um, I got bought a piece of art from a con uh, one year, a few years back, and it's got some Kodama on it, and I just think they're joyous. Um, I love the scene where they're in the tree canopy, just laughing as the wind blows. Um, Kodama are tree spirits and traditionally resemble trees, uh, but Miyazaki chose these little white human-looking designs with wide, expressive faces, and I just love Kodama. Uh, They are the cutest. Uh, It's said, if you ever hear an echo in the woods, that it's the Kodama speaking to you. Like most of Miyazaki's work, the world of Princess Mononoke is steeped in Shinto beliefs that everything has a spirit and you respect your surroundings as if they were human. Uh, Humans are good and evil is caused by evil spirits. So to keep them away, you offer gifts and prayers to the spirits. And that is why the most of the human characters in Miyazaki's movies respect and take care of the gods and the spirits. Um, Obviously, unlike this movie, where Lady Eboshi just really doesn't care all that much. Princess Mononoke is actually quite a literal translation of the Japanese name for the movie, which is Mononoke Hime. Uh, Hime means princess, so that is literal. Um, The translation for Mononoke is essentially something elusive or eerie or mysterious. Um, Something otherworldly, like a ghost or a spirit but not the literal translation for it. Um, And San, being left to die as an infant, has lived despite this. So has this kind of unknown quality to her and her very being. Uh, The DVD translation of the exchange between Lady Eboshi and Ashitaka suggests that Mononoke means the wild girl whose soul the wolves stole. And obviously, if you are left to die, then she could very well be seen as a ghost or a spirit. Obviously, um, the themes of Princess Mononoke uh, are vast. Uh, It talks about a lot. It's a commentary on many things. It's a commentary on post-World War II and the modernisation and development of industry in Japan. Uh, Japan is obviously a nation that seems to link these vast neon cityscapes with traditional heritage um but Miyazaki himself feels that Japan has lost many of its traditions over the decades and obviously this is a commentary on the loss of tradition and compared to the more light-hearted tones of something like My Neighbour Totoro or Howl's Moving Castle or Spirited Away which all have elements of comedy or fun Princess Mononoke is one of Miyazaki's more dark tales with a very dramatic narrative and more adult themes There are no happy ever afters or real light-hearted moments. It feels full on with its themes because they're important to the characters within the story and, importantly, to Miyazaki himself. The environment and humanity's disrespect of the natural world is something that I covered in previous Ghibli episodes um, because it was central to movies like My Neighbour Totoro as well. Um, But it's never been more prevalent or central to the theme of the movie than here in Princess Mononoke. It's also talked about as well in Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. 
Um, but it's more driven home, I feel, in Princess Mononoke. Humankind's want and desire to grow, develop and evolve is set against nature's need to grow, develop and evolve. And it's like the two can't coexist. One must die for the other to thrive. And with the industrialisation of the forests and the greed of the humans, the natural world is dying. Um, Very similar to today and, and how we all live our lives is seen in this movie. It's a more simplistic story Um, But it is exactly what is happening to the world. It's important to note that in this movie, that there are no villains. There are characters with opposing and valid points of view. But there's no clear antagonist in the movie. Um, Even Lady Eboshi, who on first glance you think she's a bad person with antagonistic views who wants to destroy the forest, you can actually see that some of her arguments are valid. Um, And I want to talk about the characters and how wonderfully complex and rich they are because you can empathise with each of them as well as see their endearing and negative qualities. You could say it's a story about how all-consuming hate is and how different people treat each other, but it's actually a story about how similar people treat each other. And San and Lady Eboshi, while on opposing sides, are actually similar characters with similar goals, but their hatred for each other clouds their judgment. As Ashitaka says, he wants to see Iron Town without eyes clouded by hate. San and Lady Eboshi both have eyes clouded by hate. Uh, they also both have extreme love and respect for their respective communities or packs. Uh, San for her wolf family, for the gods and the forests, and Lady Eboshi for Iron Town and its inhabitants. While San is a protector of nature, Lady Eboshi is a protector of civilization. Lady Eboshi uh, is seen tending to the wounds of lepers. She took prostitutes in from the street. She equips both the lepers and the prostitutes with social status and weapons. She sees how her community is bettered by the industrialisation of Irontown. She doesn't see beyond making her own situation better. She doesn't understand the harm she's doing because her focus is purely to create a safe home for her and her people. Lady Eboshi has compassion for the members of society that others would immediately disregard. It's a nice subversion of traditional gender stereotypes because Lady Eboshi is a powerful leader who empowers the women in her community, ending the dehumanisation of sex workers and giving them power to stand up to the men who play a reduced part in the decision making and tend to be seen as more the help, um, which is usually the roles that women get. Um, Lady Eboshi in many ways feels like the most modern character in a sense of who she is, how dedicated she is, um, how feminist she is. She genuinely wants to make this world a better place for her and her community. San is in herself a strong, focused, if irrational, environmentalist. Uh, She just wants to help protect the natural world because that's her home. Um, She was abandoned by her parents shortly after birth. Very similarly to the stories of Tarzan and Mowgli in the Jungle Book. San renounces her human heritage. She prefers to identify as a wolf. But she experiences prejudice uh, because she is human and she is seen as one of them. Uh, It's It's a remarkable commentary on identity as well, because however you identify is who you are. San is courageous. She's also true to her beliefs. Um, But it's important to note, I think, that San and all of the animals and gods in the forest are very bitter and very angry. Um, They show very little compassion or love. Um, Unlike in Irontown, where... Lady Eboshi specifically shows a lot of love and compassion for the people who live there and they in return show love and compassion to her. Uh, She is as dedicated to the people of Irontown as they are to her. Um, And so it's like these very conflicting arguments of what's better? Like, is is the natural world a better place? Uh, Or is Irontown a better place? Um, 
Sand does grow to show affection for other human beings. She also grows to accept her own humanity as well. Um, and then over to Ashitaka, uh, because he's completely different to Lady Eboshi and Sand, because he is full of love and empathy for everyone. Uh, but he is also consumed by hatred via the demon's mark, which is slowly killing him and granting him this superhuman strength during times of war. He puts himself in the middle of everyone's fight. Um, and Miyazaki is known for his compelling and complex female characters. But Ashitaka is one of the most interesting male leads uh, as this exiled prince who just wants to do right. Um, even the cutting of his topknot is a tradition signalling a life change uh, with Ashitaka the exile from his community and giving up his social standing as a prince of the Amishi in order to find a cure for his curse. Miyazaki, when asked why Ashitaka uses the demon strength within him to aid his fights, basically answered that within all humans is the struggle between good and evil and it's impossible to expect even the kindest of human beings to always be good and choose the right path which just serves further to prove how Miyazaki tries to always make his characters feel real and not just, in inverted commas, good or evil. Everyone has shades of grey in this movie. Corruption links all these characters. Ashitaka is becoming corrupted by the demon's mark, the evil grown within him, San is corrupted by her hatred for humankind, and Lady Eboshi is corrupted by power. And yet none of them are evil. None of them are overly antagonistic. They are all the heroes of their own stories and they all have a chance to be that hero. The music of Princess Mononoke is, as always, by the wonderful Joe Hisaishi with one of his most beautiful and rousing scores. I love Joe Hisaishi. I'm going to see him in concert, uh, which has sadly been postponed to next summer because of COVID-19. It was supposed to be in September this year, um, but I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. Uh, and this is one of his most beautiful scores. And I kind of feel like saying that it's a bit like, well, actually, they're all pretty gorgeous uh, because Joe Hisaishi doesn't know how to make bad music. And that is a fact. So the one thing that I like to do each episode, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. But I have this little feature that I like to do called the obligatory Keanu reference uh, in the vain hope that Keanu Reeves might be listening <laughs> to this podcast and... Uh, he might just fall desperately in love with me. Um, but so the obligatory Keanu reference for Princess Mononoke. Although I've only ever seen a trailer and I've not seen the finished movie, um, I saw a lot of reviews um, online comparing Princess Mononoke to uh, a specific Keanu Reeves movie, which was his 2013 flop, uh, let's be honest, it was a bit of a flop, 47 Ronin. Um, and they basically kind of said it's a bit like Princess Mononoke. Um, and I watched the trailer and the only similarities I can see is that it's set in Japan and it has some fighting and it has some mythical beasts. Um, so it's tenuous at best. But these obligatory Keanu references usually are. Um, and also Keanu would make a fine Ashitaka, just saying. Princess Mononoke was released in 1997 in Japan. It quickly became and then lost the accolade of being the highest grossing movie in Japan as Titanic followed it shortly afterwards. And following Disney's distribution deal with Takuma Shoten for the rights to dub and release Studio Ghibli movies in 1996, Princess Mononoke, along with Kiki's Delivery Service and Castle in the Sky, were dubbed into English and planned to be released under Miramax Films, then a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, as we've previously mentioned, Harvey Weinstein, first class a-hole that he is and always has been, wanted to cut the movie down from 135 minutes to 90 minutes, despite having promised Steve Alpert that he would not do so. Burned by the experience of the cuts to Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, where 21 minutes and 50 seconds were removed, it was renamed Warriors of the Wind and Nausicaa herself was renamed Princess Zandra. Uh, Miyazaki's producer, Toshio Suzuki, sent Weinstein a katana with the message, no cuts. Weinstein, again proving he is the real-life villain of literally every story ever made, flew into a rage and gave the full 135-minute Princess Mononoke a limited release. 
uh, much to the annoyance of Disney uh, in the US in October 1999. I mean, I don't swear on this podcast, but I'm thinking of a lot of swear words to describe Harvey Weinstein. In the UK, we got Princess Mononoke released here in October 2001. So Princess Mononoke was made for 2.35 billion yen, which at the time was approximately $23.5 million, uh, making it the most expensive anime ever made at the time of its release. When it was released in Japan, it made 11.3 billion yen on its initial release. And then on its release in the US, it made $2.2 million, uh, plus another $11 million outside of Japan and the US. Uh, The movie would be re-released several times over the years uh, and its worldwide total, including all releases, currently sits at $160.7 million. Not many people know there was a stage adaptation of Princess Mononoke. It was a collaboration between Studio Ghibli and Whole Hog Theatre. It was facilitated by Aardman's Nick Park and it was announced in 2012. So performances at the New Diorama, great name by the way, theatre in London, sold out in 72 hours, a year in advance. It then moved to Japan. I'll include a link to Whole Hog Theatre's website where you can see incredible cast photos and special effects photos. It looks truly wonderful. Over to social media thoughts. So I always like to ask for social media thoughts. Yeah, overwhelmingly positive for Princess Mononoke, as I thought that they would be. So starting with Twitter, at Derek Jones 198 said, Yes, also I just saw Spirited Away this week. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Spirited Away, Derek. At Altered Universe 1 said, just simply, love it. At The Midnight Myth said, My absolute favourite Miyazaki, as you know. Gorgeous animation, an achingly beautiful relationship between Ashitaka and San, and a searing critique of man's quest for dominion over nature. It's a world with no clear heroes or villains that interrogates the corruptive nature of hate. At BLC Agnew said, Princess Mononoke is perhaps the only example of Miyazaki fully marrying his love of pulp fantasy adventure with unapologetic environmentalism and humanism in a single movie. It's arguably not his best film, but it's the movie that most exemplifies him as an artist. On a personal note, Mononoke is the only film apart from The Matrix that I finished my initial viewing of and then rewound, ask your parents, kids, and watched again immediately. It's a moving, beautiful, spiritual experience that also kicks serious ass. One of the things I actually meant to say um, before was I find with Princess Mononoke that it is a movie that just improves exponentially every single rewatch every rewatch you get something different out of it it's quite extraordinary it's like it sucks you into the world even more so absolutely watch princess mononoke again if you haven't seen it recently watch it again and your mind will be blown i guarantee you at school of movies said One really wonderful exploration of the themes of Princess Mononoke that I would absolutely recommend spending 12 minutes is this here by Joshua Garrity. Uh, And Alex linked a YouTube video, which is really fab and I did watch, uh, that basically condenses all of the last, ooh, 40 minutes or so um, into 11 and a half minutes. I will put a link uh, in the show notes to Joshua's video because I do highly recommend that you watch it because it really is fantastic. At oral underscore AFC said, My second favourite Miyazaki princess behind Nausicaa. They both share the same message of respecting and caring for nature to the point of violently defending it from those who would abuse and exploit it. Also worth noting that it has a male lead, a rarity with Ghibli. And at Lano Danthian said, I love this film so much. I wrote a paper on it in film school. Such a beautiful film, classic samurai period piece, dark fantasy tale, a melancholy vision about the modern world and a priestess of wolves. I think this is also my first exposure to Shinto. The animals are kami. Nothing over on Instagram, but a couple, a few actually over on Facebook. So Eric said, Got to see this in the theatre in a double feature with Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. And these were my first Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli films. Beautiful animation and intriguing take on the environmental preservation genre, a la Dances with Wolves, Fern Gully and Avatar. The only issue I had was I couldn't really connect with the Princess Mononoke character herself for some reason. Need to take a second look though, and either way it helped perk my interest in Studio Ghibli films. Next on the list, Spirited Away and Porco Rosso. Both brilliant, by the way. Uh, Richard said such a fantastic film if similar in many ways to his earlier film Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind 
with its themes of nature versus technology. It's really because of this film that all Ghibli movies are released uncut after Nausicaa got a butchered release. Miyazaki here clearly proving why being called Japanese Disney is such an insult as the film it has so much life and depth with its story and characters. And Andy said, Once libraries start opening up here, I'm going to grab this one for the kids, as it was your suggestion that drove them to enjoy Spirited Away. And just on that point, I think it is a really important movie for children to watch. It is a bit more adult, um, and I know that your kids, Andy, are a little bit older anyway. Um, It's a bit more graphic, a bit more violent. There's some blood, there's some decapitation. um, But the camera never lingers on it. Um, And I think it's really good for children to be able to chat and talk to parents about the exploitation of the planet, because this is the planet that they're going to inherit when we all leave it. So I think it is important. The end of Princess Mononoke doesn't give the viewer a happy ending. The forest god is dead. Uh, Iron Town is destroyed. Although San finally experiences love and a kindred experience with Ashitaka, they part ways due to her inability to forgive humanity. Ashitaka cannot return to his Amishi tribe, so he decides to stay and help rebuild Iron Town. It does end on a hopeful message, though. Uh, Rather than let the demon of hate fester within you and cause the destruction of everything you hold dear, embrace the love, coexist with nature, and if you love someone, set them free. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Princess Mononoke or indeed any of the Studio Ghibli films that I featured. Um, If you haven't listened to them, uh, please go back. They were released on the 16th of February. There are three of them, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro and Spirited Away. So yeah, I would love it if you would watch, if you would watch them, (laughs) if you would listen and watch the movies as well uh, or rewatch them if you haven't watched them recently. They are all currently on Netflix. um, So you have no excuse. They are all available and they're all wonderful. So next episode, um, this month has inadvertently turned into a month of listener suggestions in a way. Um, I know many people have wanted me to do Star Wars uh, for a while. So I did Rogue One. Um, And Princess Mononoke, as I mentioned, has probably been the most requested movie that I've ever had since I did the trifecta of Ghibli back in February. The other thing that people really want is horror. Um, And I have dabbled in the horror genre. Um, I did The Cabin in the Woods way back when. Uh, uh, Tremors is a little bit of horror. Uh, The Mummy has horror elements. And and even Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, that even has horror in the title. Um, But when it came to a classic horror movie... I decided that I wanted to go for something that I expect a lot of people would be surprised that I even like, let alone have watched. So it's not going to be a surprise to patrons because they already know. But to everyone else who's listening, um, the next episode is going to be on John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 because it's one of my favourite movies. Um, It's full of wonderful practical effects, which, as everyone knows, I completely love. It's also very suspenseful and I've not really tackled anything kind of horror sci-fi suspense um, yet. Um, And it's also a massive flop. So, um, and I am a big fan of covering massive flops. Um, I'm even planning as well to catch the 2011 prequel movie. I've not seen The Thing 2011 because I actually didn't want to. Um, But I'm actually curious to see what it's like in comparison purely because from doing my research for Tremors, I know that Amalgamated Dynamics, who are the company who did the practical effects for Tremors, uh, were supposed to do practical effects for the Thing 2011. Um, And they decided to go full CGI. And it's a massive shame because I think they would have been fantastic effects if they just done it properly. Um, But um, it goes without saying that next episode will not be on the 2011 the Thing prequel. And I want to make that completely clear. I am watching the movie just to compare it, just to be able to say I've seen the prequel slash remake slash whatever they're bloody calling it. Um, but I might mention it very briefly. But otherwise, so next episode is on 1982's The Thing. And I can't wait. And I hope that you'll join me for it next week. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on... Titan AE, Captain Marvel, 
Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992 and 2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000, The Mummy 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Logan, Edge of Tomorrow, Legally Blonde, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 4, Episode 10, Hush, Mystery Men, Passengers, Stardust, Constantine, Arthur Christmas, Akira, Kubo and the Two Strings, The Incredibles, The Lego Movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Howl's Moving Castle, My Neighbour Totoro, Spirited Away, Treasure Planet, Clueless, Hellboy 2004, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, Bridesmaids, Tremors, The John Wick Trilogy, A League of Their Own, A Knight's Tale, Little Shop of Horrors 1986 and Rogue One. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. Need a drink after that. I don't mean alcoholic either. <laughs> Just a normal drink. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash verbal diorama. Uh, tier start $2 a month and you get perks. As I mentioned, patrons already knew that the thing 1982 was coming because they get the schedule. Uh, you also get a shout out on the next episode um, and on Twitter and you get episodes slightly early as well. So a massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast, Simon E., Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, and special thank you to new patron Andy uh, for supporting the podcast. Andy is just a true gent. He always gets involved in Verbal Diorama. He guested on the episode that I did for Mystery Men, and he gives me comments pretty much every episode. Um, he's a great guy just generally in real life. Uh, he's always there for help and advice and he's generally just a good egg. He hosts the podcast Geek Salad, which I highly recommend. And he is my ninth patron, which is just, wow, crazy. Um, so a massive thanks to him and just to all the patrons, really. Um, I'm so grateful to you all. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, my website is verbaldiorama.com or you can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. Um, if you can't support the podcast financially, but you do want to support the podcast, um, please pop over to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser and leave a five-star rating and review. That would be awesome. I would appreciate that so much. And my obligatory film stories plug. Obviously, there is a magazine. You can go to filmstories.co.uk slash magazine to order the latest issue, which is a massive issue, by the way. It's completely bumper. You can also purchase one-off copies. I also do bits for Film Stories Online as well. So I recommend a great British movie podcast each week. And I also update a iPlayer of movies. And finally, Princess Mononoke is not necessarily anti-war, anti-industrial or anti-modern. It's pro-peace, pro-kindness and pro-respecting the natural world. Bye. Movie should know. Movie should tell